Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Community Church. Today is uh, July 5th and we're excited to be here with you virtually. Uh, I want to give you some announcements before we continue forward. I want to say, first of all, thank you for your support of Christ Community Church. All of our ministries have uh, been blessed by your continued involvement in the church and your financial support as well. So thank you for that. If you have any questions about how to give, either online or text to give, you can contact the front office uh, or see the email that comes out every week. Uh, I wanted to mention a couple of details regarding the way we are going to regather in the next few weeks. There's been some changes, uh, and I wanted to make you aware of that. First of all, we have a prayer meeting on Wednesday, July 15th at 6.30 p.m. It's a great time to just gather together and pray for our community, ourselves, our nation, and uh, be together then. At 6.30 p.m. is going to last about an hour, uh, and so we, we, we hope to see you then. Our hopeful targeted date of regathering uh, the services on Sunday morning is July 19th. Uh, of course, I have to say God willing, because something may happen, but that is what we're hoping for and shooting for, and we're excited uh, that we can finally gather again together. We have uh, created three service times, uh, one at 8.30, one at 9.45, and one at 11 o'clock in the morning. They'll last about an hour long, um, and we can't wait to see everybody. I wanted to mention, being the youth pastor here at Christ Community, that the youth is trying to gather outside to study the Bible and develop our community and be encouraging to each other. And so if you don't uh, know anything about that and would like to get involved, you can contact me uh, for some of the details about how the youth is meeting this summer. Uh, please be praying for our continued search for an assistant pastor. This is the role that Sam Kennedy um, had filled in years past, and we've been trying to find somebody to fill that role. Uh, and you could just be praying for us for wisdom as we continue to work through and interview various applicants. Uh, it's, it's a needed role in our church, and we're just asking for you to pray for us. Thanks. Good morning, Christ community. Hopefully this is going to be one of the last weeks that we are worshiping at home. Hopefully we'll all be together soon, but for now we're still at home. So let's sing this song together. Say 
changing grain I am Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall He is faithful through it all Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 50. We're going to be reading verses 15 to 21. And we're also going to go into Romans 8 and read Romans 8, 28. So if you take your Bibles and just uh, open them up, turn to Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21. I'm going to read these verses. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And now I want to read that very, very famous passage from Romans 8, verse 28. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You know, when I think about COVID-19 and and all that this virus means for us today, I really have a great burden to communicate with, with young people here at Christ Community Church that there is hope. I work mostly with young people, and I wanted to uh, point to a Bible-generated, Jesus-glorifying, absolutely solid rock for us to stand on, especially in this tumultuous time. And almost immediately, the life of Joseph came to my mind. And so I taught a series on the life of Joseph for the young people in our church. And you can see those videos in past emails. Uh, And this is actually the last part of that series, this sermon. It's where Joseph and his brothers have his last conversation. So let's pray together. Father God, as we look at the life of Joseph, I pray especially for those who are unsure of their footing, who feel that this whole world is being thrown into chaos and upheaval and disruption. I pray that as we look at the various characters in this story and we see your hand working through it all for the salvation of those who love you, pray that we would be able to stand on that rock-solid foundation. I pray for those things in Christ's name. Amen. The great reformer Martin Luther once said these words, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. You know, I've reflected many times on those words over these last several weeks, it's, it's easy for us to feel the same way, that we have held many things in our hands and we've lost many, if not all of them. But there is a hope that God never loses anything that is in his hands. This is not the kind of hope of wishful thinking, of I hope I get that job promotion next week. But this rather is certainty and confidence, hoping in God that he will prevail and that he will not lose the things that we've entrusted to him. As we've read in Romans 8, it says that God works all these things together, all of them together for the good of those who love him. So God is taking everything that's happening today in our world and he's orchestrating it. And, and, and coordinating it together for our good. And you might think, what is our good? What does that mean? What is the good that God is working out? It's our salvation, our own salvation, and the salvation of many others. Now, almost immediately, when you think about the way that God might do this, it's unbelievable. How could God do this? How could he pull this off? It's a mystery for sure. Um, 
Paul Phillips, our pastor, read a psalm before last week's staff meeting, and it's one of my favorite psalms. It's a very short psalm. It's only three verses, and I'm going to read it to you. It's Psalm 131. Listen to the words of David. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Do you hear those words? They're so encouraging. Being lifted up. You know what that means in this psalm? It means that you're occupying yourself with things that are too great and too marvelous for you. It means that the hope that you have is you. And when you're the focus of your own hope, that's when anxiety and worry creep in. But, but if you take a moment and consider that, that God is actually the one who was thinking about all of these things, then you can rest in hope, as he says, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Later in Psalm 139, David says it again. He says, is the way, God, you think about the world and all of the things that are happening there. These thoughts are too lofty for me. I love the way he says that. They're just too lofty for me. How can I even begin to understand them? Now, it's one thing for the Psalms to describe it. It's one thing for Paul the Apostle to say in Romans 8 these words, that God's going to work all these things out. It's an entirely different thing to see it demonstrated in someone's life. And that's where the Bible really comes through for us. The Bible doesn't just describe things, but it demonstrates it. And today we're going to look at the life of Joseph and see how this principle is, this sovereignty of God is is actually demonstrated in the life of Joseph. You might remember the story of Joseph, perhaps by his famous coat of many colors, or perhaps you remember him being sold into slavery into Egypt or finding himself in jail because he was falsely accused or being raised to power second only to Pharaoh and, and eventually moving his whole family into the land of Goshen right there in Egypt to save them. And as you move through the story, you can see specifically how God orchestrates like many different people, uh, many different places to work all these things out together for the salvation or the good of his people. In the end, God saves them all from certain death. And there are many actors in this story. We're going to see how they interact together to save Joseph's family. There's Joseph's family, his father, Joseph himself. And then there's another character that is unique, and it is God himself. It's interesting that that God plays a role, uh, much like an actor might in a movie, uh, but God is also the, the producer of the movie. He's the director of the movie. He's written the script for the movie. He controls everything, but he inserts himself into certain scenes as the story unfolds. Let me give you an illustration. Of all the filmmakers in Hollywood, one stands out as really quite unique. M. Night Shyamalan. I think I said that correctly. M. Night Shyamalan. You might remember his movies, Signs, Unbreakable, uh, The Village, and perhaps the most popular, The Sixth Sense. Uh, you might remember the line from that movie, I See Dead People. 
it's a psychological thriller worth watching if you haven't. But, but this guy is unique because, you know, he doesn't just play one role in the making of his films. He writes the screenplay. He produces it with his own private company called Blinding Edge Productions. He directs the film. He even plays a role in some of the scenes. He inserts himself as an actor into a couple of the scenes. They're never really big roles, but they're significant roles. For example, in the movie The Village, he plays a security guard that has a pretty important conversation with one of the other characters. This is similar to to how God interacts with the story of Joseph. He writes the story. He produces it from the very beginning to the end. He directs every detail of the story, but then he enters at certain key moments. He enters into the story as himself. And as we consider each perspective that the family, Joseph and others, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, Pharaoh, all these other characters have, we're going to see how God actually enters in. So let's just take a look at the life of Joseph as we build our way to Genesis 50 and the last conversation. This is just by way of review. Remember that Abraham has a son, Isaac, and then uh, Isaac has the son, uh, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph, of course, is one of these sons. Now, Joseph was raised in the land of Canaan in an extremely dysfunctional family. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about their dysfunction. Uh, Jacob, as you may remember, uh, first married a woman named Leah. But he really wanted to marry Rachel. And so eventually he did. Now he has two wives. And then he took the servant of Leah and married her. And then he took the servant of Rachel and married her. So there were four wives that Jacob eventually had. Now, while marrying four wives is dysfunctional enough, and not something that God ever encouraged, it gets even worse. Jacob had a favorite wife. Of course, Rachel was his favorite wife. And the son of Rachel was Joseph. And Joseph, because he was the son of his favorite wife, was his favorite son. Of course, you know, uh, Jacob preferred him, showed favoritism to him, even made him a, a coat and gave it to him. And this coat is not just a nice coat for him to look good in. It actually was a coat of authority where Joseph was elevated to a job description that really was above his brothers. His father used Joseph to check in on his brothers and to supervise the quality of their work. Remember, Joseph was the youngest, and yet he was being treated as if he were the oldest. Jacob was running around making a mess of his entire family. And it doesn't end there. The brothers, they were jealous They were motivated by selfish ambition themselves. And so they were jealous of Joseph. But again, God is in control of even these evil actions. He's going to work all this out, and you'll see that. Even their sin, and you'll see that in a moment. Now, Joseph himself, of course, one of the characters, uh, and he's one of the guys that made his family so dysfunctional. He contributed. He not only accepted the job offer his dad gave him, and did it proudly. Uh, He put on the coat, and he wore it proudly, and he did check up on his brothers. He also bragged about some dreams he had had, and he basically told his whole family that he he had had a dream where they all would bow down to him 
and he would be in charge of them. And right here you see the director, producer, writer enter in as an actor, much like my, like M. Night Shyamalan does in his movies. He enters discreetly into the story. and God shows up. You may actually read right over it, but notice it. God is there directly in the story. Think about who gave Joseph these dreams in the first place. God did that. Who gave Joseph the ability to interpret these dreams? God did those things. And what happened The end result of of these dreams and the interpretation was things went from bad to worse. And God, he knew that was going to happen. And yet he did it anyways. Genesis 37 uh, verse 5 states that when Joseph told his brothers about his dreams, the brothers' jealousy turned to hatred from bad to worse. They were jealous about the coat but they hated him for his dreams. Why would God do such a thing? Why would he insert these dreams and the interpretation like this? You might might ask God that question and, and say, why? Why would you do that knowing that it would make it worse? You know, if we stop right here in the story, there's a lot of confusion about what God is trying to do. But it's important to remember in this moment without seeing into the future that God is in control and he's working all of these things for the salvation of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. The story moves on. Joseph comes and checks on his brothers one day at his father's request and the brothers see him coming from far off and they plot against him and they want to kill him. There's no surprise there. But of course, the oldest son who has to make an account back to his father says, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. And then Judah comes along and says, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Now, there's a whole story about who the Ishmaelites are. Uh, We're not going to get into that now. Eventually, he's sold for 20 pieces of silver, and he is led into slavery into Egypt. And for the first time in their lives, the brothers are satisfied, and their minds say that justice has been served. But in reality, they have sinned greatly against their brother, against their father, against themselves, and against their God. Well, they put blood on the coat of many colors and bring it back to the father, and all they say is, this is what we found. And the father has to put the pieces together that Joseph died uh, by being attacked by a wild animal. I want to stop here and just say, no one knows what's really happening here. Joseph doesn't understand what's happening to him. When his father sees this tragedy, he doesn't understand why. Joseph's brothers, they don't have a clue what they're doing. No one understands except God. It's very important to remember that at certain key moments of confusion and disruption. So, we move on, and now Joseph is a slave in Egypt. Uh, Joseph gets purchased by a man named Potiphar. He's a very rich and powerful man, and Joseph sees the uh, trajectory downward from favored son to human garbage. 
Uh, but Joseph, somehow in all of, of the betrayal, in, in the pit that he was in, in the selling into slavery, Joseph learns an essential lesson. And that is, I'm just going to trust God for what I know. I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other and be faithful to that little step that God has given me. I don't know anything else but that. And Joseph does it. That's such an encouragement for me, for you, in this time that we're in, to just put one step in front of the other. Just trust God for that, for that one small step. And that's what Joseph does. And watch what happens. In Egypt, his first uh, post as a slave to Potiphar, what happens? He's He's blessed by God. Everything he touches turns to gold and Potiphar lifts him up to run, eventually run, his entire household. And Joseph must be thinking at this moment, aha, my dreams are coming true. People in Potiphar's house are bowing down to me and I'm in charge of them. And one day, so will my brothers and even my father. But you know what happens? A new character enters the scene, Potiphar's wife. She seduces Joseph, and when Joseph does exactly what the Apostle Paul says, flee sexual immorality, when he literally flees, leaving his cloak in her hand, she makes up this story that he assaulted her. And Potiphar believes her. And Joseph, favored slave, human garbage. He's imprisoned in a cell. And at that moment, what do you think Joseph's feeling? I mean, here I am again. I thought it was all coming together. I thought my dreams were coming true. I'm never going to believe in this dream ever again. I'm sitting here in prison. And can I trust God? But through that moment of discouragement and confusion, surprise to us all, Joseph does the same thing again. He just takes one step in front of the other, trusting God not for the whole plan, because he doesn't know or see how it's all going to work. But just that one step, I can do that. And Joseph does. And what happens in prison? Of course, the same thing. God blesses him. Everything he works with is successful. And the, the ward who runs the jail puts Joseph in charge of the jail. And right here, again, Joseph feels maybe... Maybe I can believe in my dream that, that, that I'm rising up and I'm, I'm going to be uh, bowed down to and put in charge and I'm just going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep trusting God and he feels successful. Well, you remember that he met two people, the cupbearer and the baker, and he uh, notices that these two have dreams that they can interpret. And it's important to understand that Joseph begins to see himself correctly in jail. He begins to see his gift of interpreting dreams as sourced from God. And they say, can you interpret our dreams? And Joseph says, no, but my God can give you the interpretation. And so he does. One of them is restored back to his position. That would be the cupbearer. And the baker, his dream was unfortunate. He ended by being, uh, his life ended by being ex ex executed by Pharaoh. But the chief cupbearer, right as he was leaving prison to be restored to his position, Joseph grabbed him and said, hey, remember me. And maybe just 
put in a good word to Pharaoh to get me out of prison. I'm going to read Genesis 40, verse 23, the very last verse of this chapter. The chief cupbearer, having been restored to his former position, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He forgot him. And for two years, for two years, Joseph sat there in prison, forgotten. You see a pattern here, right? Joseph gets up, he's a favored son, down in the pit, sold into slavery. Potiphar's house, he rises to the top, down in prison. Rises to the top of the prison, forgotten, neglected. I am sure Joseph was tired of this roller coaster. Uh, of, of all the things that Joseph was, was seeing in his life, all this confusion, again, one step in front of the other. And then God enters the story one more time. The writer, producer, director comes in as an actor. He gives Pharaoh a dream that no one can interpret. And it was at that very moment that the cup bearer remembers Joseph. Those things are not a coincidence. Joseph was brought quickly, it says, before Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh asked Joseph if he can interpret his dream, Joseph says, well, let me read Genesis 41, starting in verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Again, he's faithful. He knows his place. He's learned his lesson as he moves through his life. Well, he gives the interpretation that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and then explains that, hey, if you want Egypt to survive, you need to gather during the years of plenty so that you have enough for the years of famine. Well, Pharaoh is so impressed that he can interpret the dream and then come up with this plan that he immediately shoots him up to the second most powerful man in Egypt and all the world at this time. That's, that's astounding that Joseph would go to from forgotten prisoner to second in charge. And this is all because of what God did through Joseph and through Pharaoh. And Joseph arrives at this elevated position, much higher than the coat of many colors or Potiphar's house or running in jail, properly understanding himself and his role in God's plan. Now again, he doesn't see the end yet, but when we get to our passage, he sees it. He comes full circle and he realizes that God has in fact worked all of these things out for the salvation of his family. Well, let's just, as we end here, think about a couple of things that the characters in this story has learned and that you and I might be able to learn from as well. First, humility. This is what Joseph learned, but I want to focus a little bit more on the brothers. 
the brothers who were brought into Egypt saw this man high and lifted up, and their hunger motivated them to bow down. Now, they didn't know it was their brother, but they bowed down, and they were humbled. Back to our passage in verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they worried, saying, It may be that Joseph will hate us, and now that father's dead, he'll pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph. Now listen to the message they send. This is the way that they're describing their own actions in their life, where they once felt justified and satisfied in the way that they they hurt Joseph, but now watch the words that they use in their new humbled state of mind. Your father gave this command before he died. So the, the father is going to help us here. We're, we're powerless. It says, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Transgression, sin, evil. That's how the brothers have come to understand their actions. And then they plead, please forgive the transgressions. Listen to these words of the servants of the God of your father. They have been humiliated. And it's important to understand that that this step is essential if God is going to save you. God does not save the proud. God only saves those who come to the end of themselves and see that even their actions are evil, full of transgression, and sinful. What might God say to the proud? If the brothers never actually learned their lesson, if they continue to be proud and selfishly ambitious, what might God say to them? It might be something like what he said to Job in Job 40. Brace yourself like a man, says God. I will question you. You will answer me. Do you have an arm like God's? Can you voice thunder like his? Okay, then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. And clothe yourself in honor and majesty. And then I will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Do you see that? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the first step to becoming a follower of God who is saved, a Christian, is humility. Well, the truth is that the brothers were not the only ones that learned humility. Joseph learned humility, as I've mentioned before. Listen to the response to the brothers that Joseph gave as they bowed down to him, as the dream was being fulfilled. Listen to what Joseph did and said. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? In other words, You should be bowing down to God, not me. I'm not God. I'm not the person you should be bowing down to. I'm just your brother, Joseph, that God has sent before you. That's it. That's all I am. And and in, in Genesis 45 earlier, when they first came, 
it says that he kissed his brothers. He wept over them. He said, come close to me. I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And watch what the lesson that Joseph learned here. He says, and now do not be distressed or do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me, not not you, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8, it's a great verse that Joseph finally learns who he is. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. You see, instead of using his power to gain advantage over his brothers as he may have hoped for as a child or gain position over them, he uses his power as a tool to save his family, not be worshipped by them. Am I in the place of God? What a great lesson that Joseph has learned. Another thing we might learn from this, and this is where I'll end, is that God meant evil for good. Now, Joseph says one last thing here in verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know, a lot of times when we read that verse, we might read it as you meant evil against me and God used this evil for good. But the word used is actually not there. And it's not hard to go back to the Hebrew and translate it. There's no gymnastics that we have to do. It's just plain that God meant it, meaning God meant evil for good. Now, God isn't committing evil, but he has a meaning in the evil that happens to Joseph and the brothers all around him. He has a meaning, and the meaning is different than the brothers. The brothers meant destruction, and God means evil for salvation. You meant evil against me, but God meant evil for good. And it's not just Joseph's good. This is the, this is the part that blows my mind. Uh, It's not just that God is saving Joseph with the sin of the brothers, the evil that the brothers do, but God saves the brothers themselves using their own evil. (laughs) Several times over the years, I've brought teenagers to West Virginia to Whitewater on the New River, and every once in a while, someone will fall out of the raft, and we have to pull them back in. And if they get too far from the raft... They have a tool that's called a throw rope. Very simple. It's a rope in a bag. And they basically just throw it out to you, and it's supposed to land near you, and you grab it, and they pull you into the boat. It's very simple. Let me ask you a question when you think about the story of Joseph. In terms of the brothers being saved, what was the throw rope that God used to save these brothers? I mean, you might think in my life, a Bible verse, a youth conference, a friend, a sermon, a song, something, you know, God's using um, me being fired from my job or, or, you know, just things, bad things that happen to me. But notice, it's the brother's own sin. That's the throw bag. 
That's the very tool that God uses to save them. So, so in essence, God takes their sin and transforms it into a tool that saves them. No one else can pull that off. There's no way. I might be able to help you or save you from some problem you're having, but I couldn't do this. I couldn't take your sin and transform it to a tool to save you. I can't do that. And it's at this moment that you have to sit back and say, only God. And, and that's the beauty of Romans 8, 28, that God takes all things, the, the evil, and he uses it as a tool to save us. It's absolutely astounding. I want you to take your sin right now, and just the secret sin maybe that you don't tell anybody, and just hold it there in your mind for a second and just kind of think about it, look at it. God can take that sin you're thinking about and save you. It's amazing, isn't it? Has this ever happened before or after this story in the Bible? Is this just a, a one-story event? Well, let me bring you back to speed here up to the New Testament, and it happened almost precisely the same way to Jesus. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, and, and so was Jesus. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, and he was sold, and he was destroyed. Instead of being thrown into a pit in slavery, they actually did kill Jesus. So let's take a look uh, at this connection to the gospel. It's very important. As you know, the leaders of the nation of Israel were jealous of Jesus, much like the brothers were jealous of Joseph. In John 12, it says, and this is right when Jesus came into Jerusalem, or this is right, sorry, this is right after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. It says, this crowd is coming into to, uh, Jerusalem right then in that moment. It says, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus uh, continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And the Pharisees said to one another, Look, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They're jealous. Matthew 27, verse 18, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the Jews had delivered him up. So just like Joseph's brothers, these same leaders tried to des destroy Jesus. The brothers tried to destroy the dream. And in the end, fulfilled the dream. In the same way, these Jewish leaders tried to destroy Jesus. And in the end, that crucifixion saved them. Just like the brothers meant evil against Joseph, the Jewish leaders meant evil against God. And God transformed it into a tool to save them. Only God can do this. That's where we end today's sermon. This is the solid rock that we stand on in this tumultuous time of chaos and confusion and disruption. God is in control. And you and I, we could have no idea what's happening. We also don't have any idea how our actions are going to end or how even our sin is going to end up. But we do know that we can just take one step ahead. Be faithful to that one step, trusting that God will take it all and work it out 
for the salvation of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I want you to stand on that today and tomorrow and for the rest of your life. Let's pray. God, we are in awe of the story of Joseph and the same way it worked out in the life of Jesus. And as we see our salvation, we see it, at least in the past, we can see how these things clearly were orchestrated by you, the writer, director, producer, who also comes in. God, we fall down on our knees in humility. We are not in the place of God. And we call on your name to be saved. And God, it is miraculous how you work these things out, even our own evil, to become tools for our salvation. Help us to spread this word in a lost and dying world. That it may glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.